I'm telling you, these people are Satanists. As I sit here, they are Satanists. Nothing will stop the Satanic total release. Bart, stop testing Satan. Welcome to the place where we are so sick of the question why Satan, we named a podcast after it. Hello, everyone, and sorry for the long hiatus. The reason for the hiatus, for those of you who don't know, is I went to Canada to visit my fiance, who I've not seen in, before that, I've not seen in almost two years. Basically, the December right before COVID hit. And so I haven't seen her in quite a while up to that point. And it was very nice and very awesome. And I want to thank all of you who basically said you were happy for me to go. And all of you who told me, don't worry about doing any recordings or anything during that time, because I wasn't going to, because there really wasn't a way of me recording there that wasn't going to sound like me talking into a phone, trying to figure out what the fuck I'm doing, trying to get a decent audio quality with no idea what I was doing. Granted, I did bring a lapel mic, partly just because I wanted to experiment. It was, uh, you guys don't care about that. So I want to thank you all for that. And then when I got home, I wasn't going to do a podcast on the first week because I was tired as fuck. And then I completely forgot to do one. I planned on it. Then I woke up Friday morning and realized, wait a minute, I didn't put one out late Wednesday night. Fuck. So I sent a tweet out that tweet out about that saying basically, fuck, I slept through doing a podcast or something because forgot about it completely and now i'm doing a short episode today and the reason why i'm doing a short episode today is monday i didn't expect to be called into work yet normally it's not till the end of september early october so sunday night i had a hard time sleeping i didn't sleep that well don't know why um i don't have a great shoulder my shoulder one of my shoulders bothers me and so that kept me up till like three or four And then I get a call at 6 a.m. saying, hey, we really need you. Can you come in? And because I'm right now per day and I don't have a contract, I'm not going to say no. Because the more I say no, the less likely they're going to call me again. So I said, yes, I'll come in right away. I go in very tired. The school's very different. They've changed a lot of stuff since I was last there. So that took a lot of getting used to. I wasn't used to walking there or taking the bus anymore. So I actually got lost a little bit on the way there. So that flummoxed me because I haven't really been there in almost two years. I was there, I think, last March. But that's so long ago because they they opened the school and then they're like, well, this isn't really working. And they closed it down for the most part because we had the other outbreaks. So Monday, I was completely flummoxed and exhausted. And then Tuesday morning, which I already knew I was going to have to go in Tuesday morning, which is today. No, today's Wednesday. See, you can tell I'm out of it. Tuesday, I went to bed early, but I woke up at three and then four and five and had to get up at six. So I got up at six and went and it was a very boring day. Literally, I mostly sat in one place. And is anyone who's actually had a job where you're mostly in one place all day doing nothing? And I was in a hallway. I was basically acting as a hallway monitor at a front door 
basically helping parents come in, new students, acclimating everyone. And so I couldn't use my phone because I'm in the middle of a hallway and my vice principal loses his mind whenever he sees anyone on the phone. They, it could be the most boring period of the day when nothing is going on. If you look at your phone for an instant, he will get on you. And you know what? I kind of don't blame him. We tell the students not to be on their phones. So we really shouldn't be. But is anyone who's been in a place just sitting there for like seven, eight hours with nothing to do? It's boring and weirdly tiring, especially when your chair is not comfortable. So what I did that day was I wrote a bunch of ideas for the podcast. And then today I had a bit more of the same. I did that a bit more. Then I had to run around the building doing stuff like chasing students around. And I didn't sleep that great either. And also it was hot in that building because when September hits... There's no air conditioning in the school building. And then it was in the 90s today. And let me tell you something about New England buildings. Buildings in New England, they're not really meant to keep the heat out. They're meant to keep the heat in. And you'd think that because it's all insulation, it's the same thing. But as anyone from a hot state will tell you, no, no, it's not the same thing. Because there's a lot of windows in the school which mean light gets in and heat gets in and the school isn't like painted like white colors. It's like a dark brick. So those heat up and when brick heats up, that stays hot and it just sort of bakes you. So I was exhausted today and this, I guess has turned into a little more of a rant. <laughs> so sorry about that, but no, I'm not sorry about that. I, I've said I'm going to sometimes use this as a vent for my vent. So thank you very much. If Hey, if you guys want to send in anything about your shitty workplace stories, uh, just leave out where you work. Because, you know, I doubt your boss is going to hear this. Uh, but who knows? That's why I don't name names and say what school I work in. Ever. I will say, though, the school has improved in a lot of ways. And before I get into that, though, because I think that's something cool. But before I get into that, the plan segments that I had that are not going to be this are the final of our introduction to Romantic Satanism review. I already recorded that, so I can say that took me quite a while to record. I kept screwing up the name, well, the word monarchy. I kept saying, um, I don't even remember what I said because my brain doesn't work. And then I asked a question on Twitter and got a lot of cool responses. So I talk about that. Now, though, I do have something unplanned to talk about because I was just thinking about it before I recorded. My school had two cool changes this year. Two really cool ones. One, we kicked out our police. You heard me. The school got rid of the school police, which were city police. We got rid of them. They're gone. They're not in the building anymore. And to paint you a picture, it used to be Actual city police, just in uh, a school district security uniform, is in their uniforms looked very police-like. They had a police belt with handcuffs. I know they had a taser. I think 90% sure, if I remember right, they had a gun, which yeah, they were mostly white guys who retired from being cop cops. And yeah, 
my school is majority minority. So that didn't work very well. So here's what happened. Apparently, they're gone. Now, the awesome thing is we have what's called safety staff. That's what they're called. They're called safety staff. Not officers, not police, nothing safety staff. Their uniform is a black shirt and a dark brown pants. The only way you can tell the security is that little uniform and the fact that on their shirt it says safety staff on it, which is really cool. And guess what? They're a majority minority presence in the school, which I will tell you, the interactions that I've seen them have with students are far better than the police. One, because these people know they are not police. They are armed with one thing and one thing only, a walkie-talkie. And guess what? Me sitting at a desk, at a table, I have the exact same thing. I have a walkie-talkie. So does the deans, so do the principal, and so does the vice principal. We have a walkie-talkie. That's what they're armed with. So there is really no intimidation factor there with, you know, a weapon or, you know, being a white guy in a uniform that looks like a police uniform. And you're a student of color who has probably been harassed by police. I will tell you a story about the school police. There you, oh, there used to be metal detectors. They're not there anymore. The school deemed we really don't need them. They've never caught anything. And students could get around them anyway. So they're gone. They're viewed as not being good for the atmosphere. So awesome. But one year, I think I've told this story before, and it's fucked up. A student walks through the metal detector, and it was a student of Arab her- heritage. And the metal detector goes off. And it's been quite a few years now, so I'm not exactly remembering the correct wording. But the officer said something like, Oh no, he has a bomb to the Arab student, saying, Oh look, they have a bomb. Yeah, that's fucking cute. And the principal fired them. Well, basically couldn't fire them because they were city police. Basically told their superior that this person's not allowed in the building again, which they shouldn't be. But yeah, that's the type of shit that I had to deal with and the students had to deal with with the police. I've talked about police before in the very first episode that I did, which had really shitty audio quality. I talked about how teachers are better trained than your cops. And I stand by that 100%. Sorry, I bumped the microphone. I'm not editing that out because then I'll lose my train of thought. The other thing that the school did this year, which is awesome, and I was going to rant about how schools need these, how there's no reason not to have these in schools. Well, I was sitting in there on Tuesday. I was writing, schools need these. It's the best place to put them. Why don't all schools do this? This is obvious. And then comes walking over to me, someone who wants to meet me, because he's new to the school. And he says, hello, my name is Mr. Person, because I'm not going to name names. And I say, well, nice to meet you. I'm Josh. And he says, I am one of the social workers that works in this school. And my mouth almost hit the floor, because I was shocked. And he must have saw that, because he, he immediately nodded and says, yeah, we have in-house social workers now, which, yes, why don't all schools 
have in-house social workers. I'm always hearing around the school, like especially with the special needs students, man, it's so hard to get a hold of a social worker sometimes in the phone, and sometimes it's really hard to match them up with a student. You know was a really good place to find students who have trouble? is a high school. And you know what's really good at identifying problems? High school. Because we see the student every day, and we get to know them. So we can identify when there's a problem at home or something like that. It's a good example. Some reason why this was taken care of very quickly because we have a social worker on the scene. It's a very, like, sad story, but it's why you need this. Two students came in. uh, They're brothers. And it was found out because they got tested that they both have COVID. So they're going to have to stay home. That's not the biggest problem, though. The biggest problem is their mother is in the hospital in critical care. Yeah, that's rough. Normally, the school would have to call somebody, figure out what's going on, try to get in contact with a social worker, or try to contact family, which they didn't have any other family, or at least not ones that they uh, were on a contact list or ones that they knew about. So normally, we wouldn't know what to do. What did we do now? We have a social worker. The social worker was able to use their resources to help out. Now, because that's all private information, I don't know what happened. But I do know that it is better than what would have happened if there was no social worker. So I do believe that every school should have social workers. It's not something I thought about other than a few days ago. And now it seems obvious. And I really like the idea of the security that's in a school. Because I do admit, the school kind of doesn't need them. Really, it shouldn't be a teacher's place to break up a fight. We're not trained for that. We're really not. We'll either likely hurt someone or get hurt ourselves or make it worse. So, yeah, there should be social workers in schools and staff that don't look like cops. And safety staff that reflect the way the school looks, or at least as close as you could get it. But I think I've been riffing long enough. I honestly kind of enjoy these little off-script segments that I have. Maybe I'll try to have more of them. I might do some bullet point notes, but I probably won't uh, think as far in advance of what I'm going to say, because I really like just talking to you guys. It feels more conversational to me anyway. And I know from hearing from some of you, you enjoy when I have less um, scripted, not really scripted, but when I have less concrete segments sometimes. Anyway, though, I'm going to stop here and I'm going to go into our final review of Introduction to Romantic Satanism. So much for this being a short show, I think my rambling made it about an average show. Funny that I ramble a lot. Who could have seen that coming? Welcome back to our extremely drawn-out series on Introduction to Romantic Satanism. Today will be our conclusion, thankfully, because it's taken quite a bit to get through this book, because I've been reading at a snail's pace, taking way too many notes. So, we're going to start in 1820s England. What's so special about 1820s England? Sadly, it was the death of Blake, Shelley, and Byron. 
and what we know of them through our romantic Satanist lenses, they were extremely popular for their many, many works. You could probably type in their names and find a lot of stuff on them, just not even literature. Like, Byron was an extremely prolific uh, political activist. But something else happened in the 1820s. We saw the French Romantic Satanists take off. And I will say that pronouncing French names is not my best. So I'm going to try. I'm going to try really hard. Pronunciation is not my strongest of suits. So we'll see what happens. So I may just refer to someone as their first name or last name. I'll try to be consistent with each person. But first we have Alfred D. Vagini. Vagini? Uh, Alfred. They're honestly someone, before reading this book, I've never heard of before. They're a poet, novelist, and playwright. And one of the interesting things to know about them, and I found this very weird with them being a romantic Satanist, they were Kingsguard in the Bourbon monarchy when it was reformed. And holy shit, the amount of times, I'm just going to say this honestly, the amount of times I've had to redo that line because I couldn't say monarchy today, holy shit, yeah, I'm just going to let you know that's how today is. I'm, I'm mentally checked out today. Anyway, so it was actually the peacetime boredom that pushed Alfred into writing. And Alfred's most well-known romantic Satanist work was about an angel, born from the tears of Jesus, believe it or not. This angel was interested in knowledge, and after being told about a fallen angel, they were extremely interested. They wanted to know more. Talking with other angels, going place to place, they were told that this was a lesson, this fallen angel, that even the best and most beautiful of them could fall and turn away from God. The angel named Aloha fell in love with the idea of this angel after being told more and more about them, and they sought them out. Upon finding this fallen angel, they were tempted with freedom and lack of guilt over human desires. The angel, having been told about this angels falling, didn't want to give in. They didn't want to fall as well. But after time of hearing about all the things this angel was able to experience and their lack of guilt and why they believed that it was so important that these things be experienced, they ended up siding with this fallen angel. It is only at this point of the story that we actually learn that they are Lucifer. According to the author of the book, Children of Lucifer. This is done on purpose to trick the reader into deciding that this angel is who they want to choose over heaven. Interestingly enough, this book was extremely popular. And as far as I could tell, this work didn't encounter as much resistance as some of our other authors are going to. Speaking of authors that got a lot of resistance was Alphonse Constant or as many of us know him as Eliaphas Levi, who is the one who gave us the image we think of today when we think of Baphomet. He was an occultist and advocate of, interestingly enough, Christian socialism. As a side note here, I find it very amusing that there were a lot of Christian socialists at the time. Say what you want about the Bible. It's pretty clear that a lot of Christians didn't believe Christ was a capitalist. However, I'm pretty sure if you showed this to a lot of modern-day Christians, they wouldn't 
their minds would just explode, and they wouldn't really be able to grasp the idea of a Christian socialist, at least in the United States anyway. Anyway, back to Alphonse. This idea of Christian socialism was the idea that you could build a socialist utopia on the teachings of Jesus. Okay, again, another side note, Alphonse, you lost me a little here, considering a lot of Jesus' teachings, at least for me, don't line up with utopia, but that's another topic for a future date. And not only was Alphonse different in the point that he was a Christian socialist, he also didn't believe in a hell, and published a Bible called the Bible of Liberty, which, you guessed it, it was a socialist in reinterpretation of the Bible. And another side note, because I'm going to have a bunch of these with Alphonse here, I'm sure this guy would be a big hit with the modern conservative party, because, you know, socialist. Anyway, oddly enough, he also made a distinction between Lucifer and Satan, which, I'll be honest, it took me a while to understand. Kinda. I still don't quite understand what the difference is. Like, I'm not too sure if he thought they were different people or the same person from different point of views. I'm not too sure. But he believed that Lucifer would save the world and Satan will tempt it into domination and slavery. He believed that the world would be saved if Satan were to be brought back into heaven as an agent of revolution and redemption, as an angel of liberty and light. And to quote Alphonse here, he stated that Lucifer did not listen because he understood, and he did not obey because he loved. He believed that Lucifer actually loved God very much, and understood that God was his own worst enemy. And Lucifer did what he did because he loved God so much, he wanted to show God that he was incorrect in his view, and Lucifer had the answers. Of course, though, the Bible of Liberty was seized. Alphonse was tried, convicted of sedition and blasphemy, which we've heard a lot in this book. He was actually imprisoned twice more for breaking the exact same law. It was after this that he took on his pen name, the one that we know more of today when we talk about Baphomet. The next writer is extremely interesting, and when I read about her, I loved her. I really like her, just from reading about her. George Sand was a woman who was noted for her complete and utter disregard of gender norms. And she didn't just reject them in her writing. She did so extremely publicly. She made a point of wearing clothing that at the time was deemed exclusively masculine, such as pants, very uh, well-fitted suit shirts, and all sorts of very nice clothing that one would typically see on someone who was viewed as male. She also was known for a very open and very many love affairs, which she apparently believed that there was no shame in them and took no effort to hide them at all. Let's just say that because of all this, I think she might have been a feminist, not too sure, and I'm pretty sure she wasn't the most popular person among people who wanted things to remain the same. In her writings, she wrote of a poor woman turned rich countess who meets Satan, and Satan explains to her that the rebellion he leads is for the poor, the weak, and oppressed. This work is actually particularly interesting, and a whole large chunk of it is actually inside this book. It goes into pretty good depth, and I really was interested in just hearing 
and reading all these just modern feminist ideas written in the 1820s. The main protagonist of this book held land, they had title, and they had a lot of just power. So, yeah, the book is an interesting read, even just from the segments I've read. And then we move on to another feminist and another socialist, Florida Tristan. She believed that both workers and women had something in common. They were both oppressed and needed to work together to fight their oppression. Sadly, she died while touring France, trying to convince people to join a national workers' union. But before she died, she also wrote a book called The Emancipation of Women, which, interestingly enough, is published by our friend Alphonse. And we can see a little bit of his influence in this work as well. Flora's book focuses on themes of revolution, redemption, and reinterpretation, where Satan is redeemed not by God or Jesus, but a female angel who sees the merits of Satan's actions. In the end, however, Satan chooses hell over heaven, much like in Paradise Lost. He is deemed the angel of liberty, and we learn that the angel who helped him is the angel of love. And they want to join together and bring both of these things to the human race in belief that that's all they need. They need liberty and love to carry on, which sounds very, very hippie, and I like it. The chapter continues going over writers such as Victor Hugo, which if you have never heard the name Victor Hugo, I'm shocked considering they are so well known that there's an award named after them. The chapter talks about the author who wrote the litanies of Satan. And then we have the final chapter, which is the conclusion. The conclusion, in short, discusses the decline of romantic Satanism as literary realism grew. However, I'm going to dive in my own conclusion. Rather than read the book's one, you can read it for yourself. In this book, we see the differences between romantic Satanism and modern Satanism. There's quite a lot, considering, one, we call ourselves Satanists. The romantic Satanists do not. That is probably one of the most easy differences. There are similarities as well. We can see where modern Satanism got its roots very easily. I think this book is really good for anyone curious about where modern Satanism came from. We see that it's not an invention of the 21st century, or even something that was started with the Church of Satan, but a long-held tradition that has many, many deep aspects to it. The book's strength, I think, is at the same time its weakness. It leans heavily on the works of others, often citing them for large chunks of the book, which is great for getting the context. If I could add anything to the book, however, I think it should mention modern Satanism and do a few contrasts with romantic Satanists. However, on the other hand, not doing so forces the right, the reader, rather, to have to do it for themselves. And that's also valuable. So it's tricky to see if that's a pro or a con. That's why I said I think it's, it's strength and weakness. It's something I always debate when I think about these books, these type of books anyway. However, that does it for my review of romantic Satanism. I will say... I'm not going to review a book like this ever again. It took way too long. It caused me to read the book so slow. So very slow. So I think from now on, when I review a book or talk about a book, it's going to be more general. It was easy with this book to do it the way I did because it's short. However, when I jump back into something like, you know, Children of Lucifer, as I've said before, if I were to try to break that down, I think 
like this book, I think it would take the rest of my life. Uh, the Children of Lucifer, if you've never seen it, it's a really good book. I haven't actually got through it. Hopefully, now that I actually have a e-reader, it'll be a lot easier to do. But it's a thick book, and it's pretty academic. And I feel like you could kill someone with it, with just how beefy it is. And I honestly pondered changing the reviewing style of this book halfway through, but I don't like doing things halfway, so I kind of stuck with it. At least I hope this was interesting. If you haven't read the book already, I hope this encourages you to pick it up. I would, like I said, it's not an expensive book. It's pretty cheap. The last I looked, I think it was less than $10 from the electronic copy. I think it's not even that much more priced on the paperback. I don't think there's a hardcover. So it's really good. Pick it up. But I want to thank everyone for basically sitting through these um, reviews because it took a while. I had fun. I learned a lot. I hope you learned something. And if you have any comments in general, what you thought of the book, if there's any other books that you think are better than this one, let me know. And if you're going to point me to that very expensive book that's listed on the TST website, I will say I'm not sure I'm going to review that book, considering it's kind of thick. Um, it's also very expensive. Even the electronic versions are ridiculously expensive. That's why I have been suggested this book. But anyway, thank you very much. And let's move on. So about a week ago, I asked a question on Twitter, looking for some responses, and I got some. So here's the question, and then I'll go on to the responses. I'm interested in hearing from people about how Satanism has improved how they feel about themselves or improved something else about them. There are a lot of stories about people looking to Satanism for activism. But here, I want to highlight the other aspects of Satanism. So we have one dreamy demon's response. I spent most of my adult life as an atheist. Satanism has given me a sense of spirituality that was missing, imagery and tools for self-development, a community of shared values, and a way of relating and connecting to other religious people. Plus, it's fun. Hail Satan. And honestly, that also is what drew me to Satanism after years and years of just straight-up atheism is just... I don't know if I would call it spir the spiritual aspects of it, but I just... Very similar way of thinking. It's I felt... Atheism was just missing something because atheism is about what we are not and Satanism is about what we are. We then have Mad Melody, who tells us, I was a pagan, but that didn't fit. Then an atheist, but that was kind of empty. TST gave me a framework that I agree with and believe in. Their seven tenets perfectly fit my life. Plus, it's fun as hell telling people I'm a Satanist. And they have that often awesome little raccoon gif going, <laughs> which I completely agree with. And that's something I've heard from a few people who were pagans, that they really enjoyed a lot of the aspects of being pagan, but it conflicted with a feeling that they couldn't buy into the supernaturalism anymore. Then we have someone here, and I'm not going to include their Twitter name, because they use the letter 8 in place of the A with Satanism and atheism, so I'm not too sure if they're just trying so their thread can't be searched or something, so I'm just going to leave them anonymous, but if they want to be included, let me know, and I'll include them later. Satanism gave me all things atheism doesn't. Satanism reminds me of a framework. 
I would use to develop apps, except I'm developing myself. Satanism is a fine balance of pushing myself and also caring for myself. The name Satan cuts through the fear left by Christian propaganda killing me. And my friend, that is honestly one of the most deep things I've actually heard on Twitter in a very, very long time. I'm not even joking. I'm not being facetious. That's incredibly just deep. The idea that it, it's a framework. It's something that you can take and develop yourself with. And I just love the idea that Satanism is a balance between pushing yourself and caring for yourself. Because that was something I was thinking of today. That a lot of religions are very either you have to push yourself to do X. And then other ones like when you get into like some aspects of some neo-paganism, it can be very much focused on caring in oneself. And I think that Satanism really blends these two ideas just wonderfully. And also the idea that Satanism, just the name of it, just cuts through the fear of Christian propaganda that so many of us were just indoctrinated in. I remember a time when I was a Christian and I read a book. Everyone's read uh, my age, probably read the books Goosebumps. And I read one of them, and one of the things in them was a seance, and I thought it was so awesome. And I wanted to have one myself. I wanted to do a seance. Like, I wasn't sure if I believed in ghosts. I don't remember. I was a kid. But I wanted to have a seance so bad. And I asked about it. I'm like, can we do this? This sounds fun. And I remember being yelled at that, like, that's evil and that's, like, satanic, and you can't do that. And I, I remember feeling, like, very bad for, like, years. Like, it was it like... I think it was like my birthday too. I wanted to do it for like a birthday thing. And I just, it just made me feel shitty for like literally years. And then we have Lilith Starr who responded and that surprised the hell out of me. The fact she responded. She gives a small list. Satanism gave me self-compassion and a feeling of self-worth for the first time in my life. Two, it got me off a lifelong addiction. Heroin. It's been transformative. The story is a core part of my first book. In the intro to my second, which she actually doesn't say the name of her first, uh, her first book or a second, but I'll tell you what they are. It is the Happy Satanist, and her second book is the Compassion Satanist. I have not read the Happy Satanist yet, but I have read the Compassion Satanist yet, and I'm going to talk about it next time on the show because I really liked it. She then does a second tweet apologizing that she can't sit and type due to the long-term pain that she has, and I will say, Lilith. You never need to apologize for that. If you're hurting, relax. Chill out. I just want to say that I'm actually humbled you replied. Uh, and thank you very much. And that is not to say that I'm not humbled by all of you that replied, considering that you all gave really awesome answers and made me think about things of my Satanism that I haven't thought about in quite a long time. So thank you for that. A lot. And if anyone else has any other responses they want to include... You can send it to me at Twitter, and I have the question pinned right now, so you can just go to my Twitter, go there, respond, or if you want to, you can email me at any time for nearly any reason at the email ysatan666 at gmail.com. If you want to send me a WAV file, please let me know what's in the WAV file first, and me saying if you can send me a WAV file does suggest that if you do send me something and you can, please send me a WAV file. The reason is they're a lot easier to work with when meshing everything together. And you will sound your best if I can get a WAV file. 
So thank you very much in advance if you send me anything at all. But I think for now, that's the end of this very short episode because I'm getting quite tired at this point and it's getting quite hot in here. So I want to thank you again. And this has been Why Satan and Hail Satan. You have no idea how many times I tried to say the word monarchy and kept saying everything else that starts with the word M. It was clearly embarrassing, but part of me wishes I kept all the bloopers and put them at the end here. I think I might do that next time I have trouble with a word, because it's funny.